This is uh, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven uh, genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing, when he predicted the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Well, can I add my welcome to Mark's if you've joined us since the start of the service. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful passage, which is so full of hope. As I speak with the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. Amen. How do we keep going when something's difficult or painful? What motivates us to not give up when we face struggles and trials in life? My brother-in-law and one of his best mates have recently signed up to do the Iron Man in Wales in September, which for those of you who aren't into crazy sporting events is a 2.4 mile swim followed by a 112 mile cycle and then a marathon run. Madness. It's widely considered one of the most difficult sporting events in the world. And the course isn't flat either. In fact, it's incredibly hilly. But whether they're crazy or just gluttons for punishment, it's crossing the finish line and the prize of being an Ironman, which they say will keep them going through the endless hours of training 
not to mention the pain and exhaustion of the race itself. They assure me that they're learning resilience too. The end justifies the means and makes it worthwhile, apparently. I might just stick to my 5k runs. The first century Christians who Peter was writing to were facing all kinds of different trials, including opposition and malignment for their faith. And Peter writes to encourage them to keep trusting Jesus and to stand fast in their faith, as Peter says in chapter 5. And similarly, Peter wants to encourage us to keep going as Christians when trials come our way too. Why? Because it will totally be worth it, even more than completing an Ironman. There's a glorious future ahead, and he wants us to know it. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, these verses will give you an insight into why Christians keep going in their faith, even when it's difficult, and that they wonder what God is doing. In verse 1, Peter describes the Christians he's writing to as elect exiles who have been scattered. And this is a great summary of what it means to be a Christian. As exiles, we're strangers in the world, refugees separated and far from home. It's no surprise then if we feel a bit out of place at work, in politics, in our ambitions, even in our families, as our values and beliefs are naturally different to those around us. In fact, if there's no conflict, then there's probably something wrong. We know we're not at home, as our true home is in heaven. And because of this, some people won't like what we're about. But we're also hugely privileged. We're elected, which means we've been chosen by God himself this is not down to anything we've done. In fact, he chose us before time even began. And in choosing us, we were set apart for a wonderful purpose, to serve Jesus. Verse 2 shows us that the Trinity, God the Father, Son and Spirit, have this same great purpose for our lives. And knowing this status as elect exiles chosen by God, Peter bursts into a wonderful prayer of praise that runs all the way from verse 3 to verse 13. His aim is to keep encouraging us to keep rejoicing, even in the hard times. And the reason he gives is that we have a living hope for the future and we're already the envy of history. He first looks forward to the future, which will be our first point, before thinking about how it affects the present, our second point, before lastly encouraging us from the past, our third and final point. So beginning in the future, our first and longest point, rejoice, we've been born again into a living hope, a glorious inheritance in heaven, verse three to five. When people talk about born again Christians, we might picture a rather overbearing, happy-clappy Christian. But in fact, a born-again Christian is the only type of Christian there is. If we're a Christian, it means God has given us new life. When a baby is born, 
Parents and relatives have huge hopes for their baby's future, for their baby's happiness, their health, etc. But they can't guarantee these things, even if they're born into the most privileged of families. In contrast, when God gives a Christian new life, their hope for the future is absolutely certain. And the reason that it's 100% certain is that it has already been secured because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, verse 3. The reality of Jesus rising from the grave is right at the centre of the Christian faith, proving that his death on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sins. Through his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ defeated death, guaranteeing life eternal to all who trust him, giving us living hope. The Christian faith hangs on whether Christ rose from the dead or not. So if you're here and you've never taken the time to examine the evidence for the resurrection for yourself, then can I encourage you to make this a resolution for 2023? Mark or I would be absolutely delighted to suggest some helpful resources. We're told in verse 4 that this living hope that Jesus achieved for us is an inheritance in heaven that will never perish, spoil or fade. Everything in this life perishes. Food goes off, money loses its value, our bodies grow old and wrinkled, homes need repair. I recently did some renovation work to my house. It was looking amazing. The walls were freshly painted, I had some brand new carpets, and yet, within weeks, a cup of tea had been spilt on the new carpet, leaving a stain that won't come out. A heavy downpour caused rain to come through the bathroom ceiling, leaving water damage and new paint peeling off the wall. Nothing in this world stays faultless for long. How amazing, then, if we're trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, that we can look ahead with absolute certainty to an eternity in heaven which will always stay perfect. No tea stains in sight. Thankfully, verse 4 also assures us that no one can steal or take away this inheritance. I was interested to read that only one man in history has managed to steal the crown jewels, a man called Thomas Blood in 1671. And he didn't get very far. He was arrested trying to leave the Tower of London. Since then, no one has come close. The jewels are protected by a world-class security system with over 100 hidden cameras, as well as two top guard details. If a thief gets past these, they also have to get past the 22-strong Tower Guard, as well as the 38 Yemen warders who live and work at the Tower. Finally, they'd have to find a way to break through the bomb-proof glass that encases the jewels. Realistically, I think Thomas Blood might be a one-off in history. And heaven's security is far superior to the security measures in place for the crown jewels. It's unbreachable, kept under lock and key by God. Secured by the blood of Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, who 
who died in our place on the cross. And not only that, verse 5, through faith we're shielded by God's power until Christ returns. God knows that we are the weakest link, but he doesn't just say goodbye. Instead, he shields and protects us. He gives us his armour to stop us giving up when trials and opposition come our way. And knowing as Christians, we have a secure and certain future shapes the present. So our second and shorter point, we rejoice in the midst of trials that refine our faith, verse 6 to 9. Trials can come in so many different forms, in sickness, bereavement, losing our job or reputation, or equally facing hostility for our faith. And the reality is that trials are rarely fun and might well seem never-ending. But in comparison to eternity, they really do only last a little while. As we reflect on where we're heading, we can find joy even in the midst of difficulty. And not only that, we're able to trust that these trials aren't meaningless, but have purpose. Verse 7. Peter tells us that they help prove that our faith is genuine and also refine us so that we become more like Jesus. As we keep going, trusting Jesus in the midst of suffering and clinging on to him, our faith becomes more real. What's more, trials help us to see just how precious our faith really is. So precious, in fact, that it's not worth trading for all the gold in the crown jewels. And that's a lot. Experts value the whole collection as being worth between three and five billion. But that's pennies compared to the riches of our glorious inheritance in heaven. How wonderful that our faith won't perish like gold. And that in the same way that fire refires gold, God uses fiery trials to refine us. Recently, my aunt very sadly died following a two-year battle with cancer. It was not an easy time, but what struck me most was that throughout those two years, she didn't stop rejoicing in Jesus. Even on the harder days, her love for him was clear. She always had an inexpressible and glorious joy, verse 8. She absolutely knew the end result of her faith, the salvation of her soul, and that kept her going and kept her encouraging others. At her funeral, she asked for one message to be preached, hope. Whilst we may face grief in all kinds of trials, it's a comfort to know that they are never pointless. This doesn't mean that we'll always understand what God is doing or why, but it does mean we can trust that he's at work, refining us and helping us to see what's of eternal value. And lastly, and even briefer still, Peter looks back to the past and reminds us to keep going 
as we're actually the envy of history. So lastly, we're the envy of history, verses 10 to 12. We don't always realise it, but living today, we're in a hugely privileged position. It can be easy to look back to the past with rose-tinted glasses and to wish we could have met God in a burning bush or had God speaking prophecy through us. And yet Peter wants us to know that all the prophets were writing for our benefit, not serving themselves, but us, verse 12. Even though someone like the prophet Isaiah, inspired by the Spirit, was able to write comprehensively about the sufferings and glories of the Messiah, verse 11, he lived in an era before Jesus came. In contrast, we have the full story. Living the other side of Christ's death and resurrection, we get to fully see what Christ has done for us and all the blessings that this brings. Isaiah would have gladly time-travelled to the present when all the prophecies have been fulfilled and to stand in our shoes. Similarly, the angels envy us and long to look into these things. Verse 12. It's as if they're looking over the parapets of heaven, enviously, as not being human, they will never get to experience the glorious joy of being saved by God. So as we finish, like my brother-in-law and his friend, the two Ironman runners I mentioned at the start, let's press on, keeping the finish line in mind. While struggles and trials will be part and parcel of the course, every ounce of the blood, sweat and tears will be worth it when we cross the line and receive Jesus Christ's praise, honour and glory. Let's not forget we're the envy of history and have a living hope, a glorious future inheritance, which unlike the Ironman medal, can never be taken away. And if you haven't yet entered the Christian race, you're still watching from the sidelines, wondering whether to sign up. Let me assure you that Jesus is the only one who can give you a certain living hope for the future. We've lived long enough to know that even politics can't give us the certain hope we long for. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he can. And this living hope really is far more precious than gold or anything else this world can offer. So let's finish by responding as Peter calls us in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.